It's the show, no problem. On the show and on this podcast, why are we locked down two years into this mess? Well, because no matter how many billions we blow on healthcare, it's not being spent right. And it hasn't been for a very long time. So those looking to blame Doug Ford, trust me, there is plenty of blame to go around on all of these failures. How is it that every other country is opening up, yet Canada keeps shutting down? We're seemingly using a whack-a-mole approach that's not working. The virus is not going away. And we're the most vaccinated country on the planet. Vaccines were supposed to be the ticket to freedom. Other countries are changing their strategy to get out of this thing, except Canada. So what is the strategy out? And the number one tennis player wins an important court ruling. But Novak Djokovic may still not be allowed to play in the Australian Open, but is a vaccine fight that's become very political. And he says this is no longer about tennis. And Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is going to push ahead with a vaccine mandate for international truckers, despite these threats that it's going to drive up the price of already expensive food and could leave our shelves bare of supplies already snarled in supply chain issues. We already have a driver shortage across North America. Will someone blink before the deadline of January 15th? Let us get talking. This is On Point with Alex Pearson on Global News Radio. These problems have been structural, they've been in the system for a long time, and the media is not holding the politicians accountable. And in my opinion, that is your job yeah. to bring these things to people's attention. Um, because the politicians have had a free ride for a long time. The healthcare system, the ambulance system, it's all the same. Darn right it is. We're not getting the system we pay for, but children cannot keep paying the price for it. Alex Pearson with you on this Monday, January 10th, and uh, I certainly hope you had a great weekend. Maybe had a bit of time to catch your breath, albeit, holy crow, is it cold out. My goodness, it is, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm okay with lockdown when it comes to cold snaps, but that's about it. But here we go, you know, heading into the second week of uh, homeschooling in Ontario, while the whole world around us is just opening up. You know, province in the West, getting on with life. I'm reading about a million kids back into the classrooms they go, you know. They've got businesses open. It's only here in Ontario, and I don't even know what they're doing in Quebec, but, you know, we're, we're continuously upside down. And so on the weekend, I actually did something I've never done before. I went to a protest. Yeah. I went to a protest at Queen's Park, and, you know, as a, as a reporter, I've certainly covered countless protests, but I've not actually ever attended one as just Joe Citizen. But I went as a parent, because I just can't sit by, and I can't watch kids pay the price for bad governing. It's not their fault, and kids should not be paying the price for it. And it wasn't a huge protest. It wasn't one of the union-led protests where, you know, they organize for weeks and bus people in. But this crowd was, you know, from all political stripes, all kinds of backgrounds, who simply refused to sit back while their kids fall apart because of all the political failures that, as that gentleman said off the top, you know, these aren't new. They date back decades. And the one thing, and the one kind of constant conversation I heard the most was, you know, here we are the most vaccinated in the world. When does the insanity end? And why isn't there more outrage? Which is a really good question because parents should be, Screaming mad. I know you are. I hear from you, but you got to make some noise. Because it's not like we don't have the data to show the enormous learning loss kids are, are suffering. And we also know there's a huge growing mental health crisis. 
We know that kids have record-eating disorders. We know about their increased depression, anxiety. And I still don't know, why don't those health issues matter as much as COVID? I mean, the pandemic's going to end. The loss the kids are suffering, that doesn't go away. These losses are going to affect their entire lives. And the kids this hurts the most are those who can least afford it. You know, those living in lower incomes, those in marginalized communities. Why are we okay with this? I mean, the justification for the closures is that we have to protect our healthcare system. Well, the burden should not be falling on kids. And it shouldn't be falling on small businesses either. But, you know, let's be honest. When was our health system ever not under strain? And I read lots of articles. You know, you start going through the history of where we've done our spending and where were the cuts and all the rest of it. And there's a lot of information out there. But even before COVID, Ontario hospitals were operating almost at full capacity, 96% on an average day. When have you ever gone to the hospital and not waited hours and hours and hours? And according to the provincial you know, watchdog, in 2018-2019, a quarter of our hospitals were operating over 100%. I mean, you need only look back to those headlines in the 905. Every day, it was a hallway healthcare crisis. Every day. In 2019, the Ontario Hospital Association, um, they released a report. And this is nothing to be proud of. We're tied with Mexico for the lowest number of beds per capita. I mean, that is pathetic. It's pathetic for a G7 nation that forked out $308 billion in healthcare spending back in 2021. That's a lot of money to deliver universal care that clearly can't be delivered. Clearly not in Ontario or Quebec. And Justin Trudeau, you know, he can blame the unvaccinated for why we're locked down, but that is a deflection from his and other politicians' failures because, you know, it would help if every person in this country got vaccinated. But even if they're not, the hospitals would still be strained. I mean, the reality is, despite decades of warning that hospitals were buckling, politicians from all stripes didn't bother to do anything. And as much as everyone wants to pile on Doug Ford, there's a lot of blame to go around, including, you know, the Wynne McGinty government. They didn't make the right investments over their 15 years of power. And Wynne you know, admits this. In a recent uh, McLean's interview, she admits that her party tried to balance the budget by lowering health spending at a time when Ontario's population grew 27%, and the number of people over 65 increased by 75%. She said she would not make the same move today, which is great. But it's too late. I mean, when you think about it, I mean, imagine where we might be today if the Wynne McGinty governments had focused as much on, I don't know, improving healthcare delivery or, I don't know, implementing some of those SARS strategies as they did on climate change. I mean, imagine where we might be had they not blown tens of billions, tens of billions on failed green policies. So it's very rich for Stephen Del Duca, the leader of the party, to wag his finger of blame. But that finger should point right back to himself because he was part of that government. And Trudeau should not get to hide behind the provinces which have carried the biggest burden of healthcare spending because the feds have inch by inch by inch taken themselves out of it. But his government's refused to raise health premiums since taking charge in 2015. So contrary to the very popular 
Stephen Harper hating spin, the Trudeau government has kept the exact same 6% spending on health transfers, which, of course, hasn't been able to keep up with um, increased costs. And now if we're to clean up the mess of canceled you know, surgeries and capacity issues, according to the Ontario or the Canada Medical Association, we'd have to spend another $28 billion. And that's on top of what we pay yearly in health transfers. So we've been at this breaking point for years and you add in a virus that's not going away and you got a calamity. And now we've got a tsunami of mental health illnesses. Uh, surgery backlogs and on long-haul COVID issues that we will not have enough staff to tend to or beds to put bodies in. And the premiers and prime ministers just finished up a, a, an emergency meeting, I guess, to talk about the issues and the surge and all the rest of it. Well, they should have seen this coming. This meeting was needed before the virus hit. The fixes to healthcare were needed before COVID arrived on our doorstep. I don't know what these people have been doing this whole time other than throwing billions and billions and billions to band-aid up all their screw-ups. But what happens next? What happens in flu seasons? Politicians are so comfortable with lockdowns. Are we just going to shut down every time there's a surge? Are kids going to be losing weeks of school every time numbers go up? I mean, they will if we let them. Because if you think hospitals are strained now... It's going to be a lot worse moving forward because staff are completely burned out and they're walking away. So we can throw billions and billions at healthcare, but nothing's going to improve because it's clearly not being spent in the right areas. And those in charge have proved time again that they either don't have the will or the ability to shore up our systems and staffing levels to prepare for the best of times, let alone a crisis should it hit. So this pandemic will end, but our hospital system is going to still be very, very broken. And we can't continue to destroy kids to cover the arses of those who fail to do their job. But I'm just watching the cases surge. And no one in charge at Queen's Park is talking. I'm, it would be great if maybe they could give some clarity on where the situation stands and what parents can expect. I'd advise them, not that I do advise them, but, you know, maybe don't wait to the very last minute. Maybe manage expectations early. But, you know, if parents don't start raising hell and giving voice to their kids, I guarantee you this two-week shutdown will go until March. And why do I say that? Because we've seen it time and time and time again. All right, great to have you here with us on this Monday. You know, two years into this clown show, and it seems the strategy at play is this never-ending game of whack-a-mole to try to get ahead of a virus that we never get ahead of and is it's not going away. And here we are, the most vaccinated country in the world, and we all know that vaccines help, but it doesn't look like they're going to give us herd immunity. And the politicians told us that the vaccines were the way out of this nightmare. And yet, if you're living in Ontario or Quebec, we are locked down the way we were at the beginning. And this strategy can't go on forever. I mean, even if case counts are high, they don't tell necessarily the whole story because vaccinated or not, you can still end up in the hospital. So... We need a strategy. There's got to be an end game to this. You know, we need a path out of this hysteria and get back into a world where we protect those who need protection, but allow the rest of society at large to live, you know, some kind of life. 
Dr. Monica Gandhi is an infectious disease doctor with the University of California in uh, San Francisco. She joins us now. Doctor, good to have you. Thank you so much. All right. Uh, your reaction. I mean, I spoke with you before uh, Christmas as we were kind of locking down a little bit, but schools were still open. Now we're pretty much completely locked down again. Uh, when you see what's going on in Canada, what goes through your mind? You know, it doesn't make sense to me for you to use 2020 strategies for 2022, because the reason that there were lockdowns at the beginning of the pandemic is people didn't know how it spread. And then beyond that, we didn't have any vaccines. So a very vulnerable person could get infected from someone who's less vulnerable and get really sick. And so what have we seen? Well, you have high rates of vaccination in Canada. You're during your Delta surge now, during your Omicron surge, the cases and hospitalizations are not the same rate. Yes, hospitalizations are going up, but some of those are from not for COVID, but because we swab everyone's nose. And beyond that, that decoupling has really happened because of immunity in your population. So we have to protect vulnerable people, absolutely, who are at risk for a severe breakthrough. And we have to allow children to be in school because the damaging effects of school closures are very clear. Well, they are very clear. They, there should be more outrage. I, I don't know why we're not seeing more outrage. There was a small protest I, I attended over the weekend where there were parents questioning the same thing, like, where is the outrage? We have health officials that don't want us to have COVID. Many are still determined to get to COVID zero, which to my understanding is impossible. And yet we are allowing um, generations of children, millions of children to be harmed, um, you know, lose their mental health, uh, their schooling, their learning. Um, and, and people just seem to be going along with it. It is impossible to get to COVID zero and actually has nothing to do with human behavior. It has to do with the fact that there are animal reservoirs, that there's a long infectious period of the virus, that these vaccines don't cause sterilizing immunity and force COVID looks like a bunch of other respiratory pathogens. Those four features make it absolute that we have to live with COVID. So why did we shut down society to begin with? Because we could not stand a respiratory pathogen causing severe disease. That was the right approach at the beginning. We didn't have any immunity. Now, two years in, place countries like yours have very high levels of immunity. Omicron is also maybe less likely to infect lung cells. And you have to use different strategies. We have a whole plan, protect the vulnerable with strong masks. That would be people who are uh, 75 and have multiple medical conditions or immunocompromised. Let um, others not blanket mask mandates because it doesn't actually, especially the masks we generally use don't stop transmission. And also sort of shutting down asymptomatic testing, which is what the CDC is going towards, and mm -hmm. really focusing on protecting those who need the most protection, which is good masks and lots of testing. You know, the Trudeau government uh, on Friday, um, you know, kind of dangled this possible vaccine mandate uh, that they seem to think is the, the answer to this. I mean, we have very high vaccination rates. As you know, there are, um, you know, almost 90 percent fully vaccinated. And so, yeah, there are outliers who will refuse it. There are people who don't want it because they're scared. And there are those who medically can't get it. But even if Canada managed to get every single single person vaccinated it still would not change the fact that people can end up in hospital it also wouldn't just get rid of these cases yeah that's the problem is that for example a highly vaccinated region like singapore um, unlike yeah. Canada, is decided to only track hospitalizations and they actually track cases but that's only in the health department and then they announce uh, hospitalizations to the public so does the philippines that allows the nation to say hey this is not like 2020. This is we're doing much better despite these high cases because of all of our immunity. And that 
in and of itself would lead to less panic in, in, in the public is just going to a hospitalization-based metric. And it has to be that you're there for COVID and not with COVID in your nose because we screen everyone for COVID in a hospital. Right. And so how much of this do you think is still being um, led by, uh, you know, politics? And, and there are people, there are people in the medical community who, who just, you know, they think that lockdowns are the only answer. How much of this do you think is being driven by misinformation now in politics? I think there is this, um, there are um, some people who are pushing for COVID zero, but I think they're not infectious disease physicians who sort of have a long view of infectious diseases and how um, and how they work and how their characteristics that only one infection has ever been eradicated worldwide in humans, smallpox, and it had none of the features I just told you about. It didn't have an animal reservoir. It didn't have, um, a, you know, it had a short infectious period. It looked like only smallpox. So there was features that allowed it. This simply doesn't have biologic, virologic features that allow COVID zero, but it certainly has the ability to be controlled from what we were so scared about, which was severe disease. Mm -hmm. And that's why we have the vaccine. Right. I mean, and, and, and the one argument we hear the most is that we can't let our hospitals be overwhelmed here. And clearly that's been an issue for a very long time in this country because uh, we're not spending the money maybe in the right places of where we need to get ahead of, um, you know, uh, emergencies when they surge like we're seeing now. Um, but, you know, we're seeing the United States yeah. go from, um, you know, President Biden thought that this would be in the rearview mirror back in July 4th. But I think even he is now seeing and the CDC is seeing that, look, we are never getting rid of this. We've got to, you know, clearly get people on with their lives and stop locking down. And so even they're yeah. changing their strategy to living with this. But you're very firm in your belief that we should not be masking kids, you know, and masking people and kind of living with these draconian measures anymore. Well, I do think that masking during surges right now, no one it is absolutely fine. It's gonna it would allow children to be back in school and this particular surge. But after a certain period of time, we should not be masking forever. Blanket mask mandates didn't really change anything with transmission unless you use the right type of mask. So I'm really trying to encourage the right type of mask on vulnerable uh, people who are immunocompromised or elderly, like my father, N95s, KN95s, FFP2s, KF94s, double masking, but it's really going towards protecting those who are most vulnerable to severe breakthrough infections despite the vaccine. And we're getting really good data on who's vulnerable, immunocompromised, very immunocompromised, and much older patients with multiple medical conditions. Those are the people that we must protect through strong masking. Just before I let you go, doctor, I mean, there is this talking point we keep getting from the um, you know, health officials and the politicians, you know, that we just have to dig a little deeper. It's going to be a tough winter, but we'll have a better spring. We've heard this now every, you know, every season. And I think there's a lot of people wondering, OK, so is this our life where we get a reprieve in the warmer months uh, and we just keep locking down because of surging cases? No, you know what? President Biden's um, advisory task force put out in JAMA Internal Medicine or JAMA last week is that they said, we want to lump all our respiratory pathogens together now and um, decide what we need to do every winter for respiratory pathogens. We absolutely always need more hospital staffing and hospital beds in the winter. Something that people may not have realized is that I work in a hospital and we're always short staffed in the winter because people are out for different infections. So we want um, good hospital staffing in the winter. We want to put it together with other respiratory pathogens and not lock down society, but do everything in our power to keep on vaccinating, to keep on reducing the severity of disease. And that's actually what, how we manage all of our other respiratory pathogens. So it was an acceptance last week, I think, of the Biden task force 
former uh, Biden task force to put together this article in JAMA, and I would encourage people to look at it. Celine Gounder is um, uh, is one of the main authors, and she's been very realistic about the inability to get to COVID zero. Yeah, well, I think most of us will be at the level of insanity if we ever, by the time we get to COVID zero, and that's yeah. not the answer either. But there's also Doc, humanity. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I've been thinking yeah. it's not just business and the economy and and you know schools. It's also people's humanity. It's not that people are selfish for wanting to be together. It's just called humanity, and so. Um, we have to learn how to live with this with this virus, with all the great tools we have now. One thing I would really, really want is ramp up a Paxlovid, which is a therapeutic for it. Um, but we have, yes, we have to learn how to live with it. No question about it, Doctor. I very much appreciate your uh, time. I know you're very, very busy, so it's always appreciated. Thank you so much. That is Dr. Monica Gandhi, who is uh, speaking a whole lot of common sense these days. And finally, I think people are starting to listen. We just need them to listen here in this country. Stay strong. This is straight win victory for Novak Djokovic. Six, six love, six love, six love. Game, set, match, Novak Djokovic. There you go. Serbia is uh, celebrating what it sees as a major win for freedom after their star tennis great Novak uh, Djokovic was released from an Australian immigration detention center. And the judge in his case ruled that the federal government's decision to revoke his visa over his medical exemption from COVID uh, requirements was, quote, unreasonable. Djokovic, uh, who got the vaccine medical exemption from the vaccine got it on the basis that he had gotten the virus last month. He presented evidence of this before he traveled. He got he checked every single box that you have to and was greenlit to go to Melbourne, only then, of course, to be taken into a quarantine hotel when he landed. And uh, in his ruling, the judge said, you know, what more, what more must he do? It's a good question. Richard Curland is an immigration lawyer with Curland Toby. He joins us now. Good to have you, sir. A pleasure. Australia um, has some of the harshest COVID measures uh, on the planet, Uh, lockdown, border closures, mandatory vaccines, but they did green light him. And, you know, he might not play in the tournament yet, but this has, am I fair to say that it has really kind of blown Australia's rules apart? Well, you know, the fellow put a giant, I'm unvaccinated label on his forehead uh, and uh, his uh, legal legacy in the wonderful world of Australian immigration law uh, was a little different than described. It wasn't a judgment whether yes or no COVID vaccines uh, should apply or he did something right or he did something wrong. It was a technicality. It was procedural fairness. They didn't give him a proper opportunity to explain himself. So mm-hmm. all of this parading in the street is for naught. Here in Canada, we have a similar thing. Just because you're released from immigration detention and you can walk the street does not mean you have been legally admitted into Canada. It just means your case is going to continue, but you're at liberty. You're not formally admitted into the country. And now, Here's the problem. Now, the Australian immigration minister has an ocean of discretionary Mm -hmm. power at their disposal. The minister can just wake up in the morning and say, you know what? 
it's in the national interest, and I have the power to make this decision, you're out. And there's very little you can do about it. So what's happened? What's happened is that the, it's, it's, it's out of a movie. A world-class tennis player who has legions of followers for all sorts of reasons, including the unvaccinated, uh, has positioned himself just prior to a May election in Australia as the badge holder uh, for COVID policy in Australia. So how is the minister going to decide this? This tennis player upgraded, upgraded a simple uh, immigration entry as a visitor Mm-hmm. into a calamity of political proportions because he's going to force the government of Australia to do the right thing, which is not about a tennis player, which is about Australia itself, the population, yeah. protecting the health and safety of everyone. That's, it's going to be a rough ride. Yeah, it certainly is. I mean, it's now known as the uh, Jakovic affair, and it's revealed what it has revealed and and what's been leaked out over the last couple of days is just kind of there's a lot of doubt and confusion. Like it's like the left hand doesn't know what the right hand doesn't knows. The federal government doesn't know what the states do. They don't know who gets an exemption. Not. I mean, the prime minister had no idea that you could get an exemption at all. So it, it did it did lay out the, the, the confusion, but I suspect, and maybe you can correct me where I'm wrong, this decision is going to open the doors probably for others to be able to get around this mandate. Oh, bingo. And that's the problem. This guy's just poked a hole in the submarine. And, and his uh, iconic popularity is going to be paraded, not just on social media in Australia, but globally saying that, you mm-hmm. see, Unvaccinated works. We don't need to get vaccinated. But here's where the money is. Some astute official opposition politician in Australia is going to open the wallet and pay for focus groups to test the political strategy to fully support the tennis player in opposition to the government to gain (laughs) favor the way the Trump crowd gains favor in the United States with an anti-vax position. So Australia is going to have some problems. Well, yeah, they are. And, and Richard, I don't have too much time to get into this. But I mean, look, we have a federal government that's kind of dangling this uh, thought here saying, well, you know, we think the provinces could do this. I mean, it's clear that the, the Trudeau government is trying to get a taste of is there any appetite? We know that polling says there's no appetite for vaccine mm. mandates. And we are highly vaccinated. But Canada should be watching this very closely because I've had charter lawyers on saying, like, you can't you can't do this. You can't force anybody to put something in their body and there can be a real backlash against it can have actually if they hadn't said anything it probably wouldn't have done as much damage as it has well not on a mass scale you can't do something but you walk into any emergency ward particularly the psych wards you can force medication on people the law entitles you to do that but will we do that at the uh, mass pop level here in canada i hope not and we better not (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> because that North Dakota border is going to open real fast, and we're going to see it. a lot of stuff flow in here that we don't want to see.
Well, he'll be busy, but nonetheless, a fascinating case. And uh, we don't know if he'll play in the tournament yet, but uh, certainly everyone's going to be watching. Um, I wish I had more time, Richard, but sadly I don't. But I will have you on again because it's, uh, it's one of those cases that has a Sounds wide, good. And my lingering question was always right at the get-go, why didn't he want his vaccination? But I'll let that go. There you go. Well... I guess his body, his choice. And that's the choice. That is ultimately, you're allowed to make that choice. You may pay a price, but it is his choice. Um, Richard, very much appreciate it. Thank you. Yep. Bingo. Thanks. That is Richard Curlin uh, joining us here. So we will keep an eye on that because there are big implications. And if the Trudeau government's not watching it, they should be. Because if they step on this landmine, it will blow up. In today's environment, it's it's pretty bad out there. It's uh, like fleets have 10% of their trucks parked because they can't put a, uh, anyone in the, you know, in the driver's seat. Indeed they cannot. You just can't get in a truck and drive. Well, I can because I got my license, but nonetheless, I'm not getting uh, in a truck to drive. But the Trudeau government is uh, doubling down on these plans to force all international truck drivers to show proof of vaccination or they can't come over the border to pick up or drop off deliveries. So we're talking about 16,000 drivers who could be pulled out of service um, at a time when we've already got a shortage of 20,000 drivers. And in America, they've about, I guess the shortage is about 80,000 drivers. And driver, truck drivers have warned that this will cause big disruptions to the supply chain. The Trudeau government doesn't seem to think this will happen. But we have seen supply chain issues. I mean, they have driven up the cost of food to an 18-year-old high, 18-year high. And so this will and could make it much worse. I mean, it's one thing to take a hard line on vaccines because you want to play, play politics. It is entirely different when you're willing to have a showdown that could result in shelves being empty of goods that we actually need. So wherein lies the truth? Let me ask somebody who once upon a time, I thought, what would I want to talk about supply chains? And then I thought, geez, I can't live without them now. John Keogh is founding and managing principal with Chantella and also a professor of practice at McGill University for the Convergence of Health and Economics. Good to have you, John. Thanks for having me, Alex. All right. I want to talk about what the uh, truth is, fact or fiction. I mean, there's going to be politics on both sides of any kind of vaccine mandate. You know, there will be politics with the truck drivers, but there's also a lot of politics happening with the Trudeau government. So how risky is this uh, showdown with the Trudeau government over this issue? Can you hear me okay, Alex? Oh, I've got you. I think we're having problems on all ends now. We've got you, John. Yeah. Okay, wonderful. Well, I think uh, timing is always critical for uh, for you know major issues like this, or major decisions like this. And you know the economy is trying to recover, and you know during the winter months we're dependent on fresh fruit and vegetables from you know Arizona and from California. So timing is 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 suspect here when the economy is trying to recover. It's not just fruit and vegetables, but you know we have about sixty percent of our trade with our largest trading partner is via road transportation. So if timing wasn't there over the last uh, you know, two years, uh, it's, I'm curious as to why the decision was made to do it now in the middle of winter. Well, I mean, look, the, the Trudeau government has chosen this hill as a political uh, hill they feel that they can die on and that they'll get the support. The, the, the problem is it's the Canadian public that will be hurt the most by this. It'll be businesses that are hurt the most by this. So in your mind, given your experience kind of looking at the bigger picture, will this actually um, block up supply chains? Uh, absolutely, absolutely. 
So if we if you know if we can't get truck drivers coming into Canada with uh, with food, consumer goods, uh, automotive parts, it will slow down the whole process. It's not just as I mentioned, not just in the food industry and retail, but it'll go right across the economy. And uh, you know every province will experience some difficulty at some level uh, across different uh, different sectors. The consumer will most likely end up paying more for products. So we, we saw that happening last year as well as prices increased. The cost of freight from for bringing a truckload of fruit and vegetables from California or Arizona doubled last year, and you know the industry were saying that that was in part due to difficulties getting drivers. Uh, but as we talked about previously, Alex, the new drug testing that came into place at the, ironically it was at the the start or coincidentally at the start of COVID, that has taken uh, about seventy eight thousand U.S. truck drivers off the market mm-hmm. over the last uh, eighteen or twenty months. So how soon would we feel um, the shortages? Like, what what are we talking about biggest shortages of? I mean, it, it was a once upon a time a rush to get toilet paper, but this is much bigger than that. What would be what would be the hits that we would see? Well, the products that we're most dependent on are, you know, are most sensitive are, of course, our food products. So leafy greens, uh, fruits and vegetables coming in. Uh, I think they're ones that we'll start to see shortages on uh, earlier. We're not going to, you know, the the Canadian consumers are not going to experience issues related to uh, automotive parts, as an example, or lumber that's moving back and forth, or, you know, uh, animals that are moving, uh, food animals that are moving back and forth across the border. So I think in the fresh fruit and vegetables, it's the most likely area where we'll experience some shortages, uh, maybe sooner than later. Right. And and it hasn't gotten this issue has not gotten a lot of attention. It's starting to pick up steam now as we kind of head towards the, the, the January 15th deadline. I just don't understand why it has to come down to this other than politics is at play here. Um, and the Trudeau government clearly feels like it has a position to force the hand of truck drivers. I don't think they do. I think there are a lot of drivers who, John, look at this and say, you know what, I've done this a long time. I don't need the hassles anymore. I'll walk away from this and uh, they can have their new drivers and try to fill all the holes. I mean, there's a lot at risk here. There, there is a lot, Alex. And in fact, uh, I did a webinar yesterday where I was talking about a supply chain resilience report from 2021. And what's quite surprising in that uh, resilience report, it looked at, looked at the causes and consequences of supply chain disruption and quite surprisingly, cross-border land transport has been the primary cause of logistics disruptions across 2020 and most likely in 2021 as well. So we're talking about 84% of organizations uh, reported delays in cross-border land transportation and 70% in domestic land transportation. That's as opposed mm-hmm. to you know 65 who reported sea transportation delays and 63% in air transportation. So we were already struggling with major issues here. And and part of the frustration that truck drivers have is the long hours caused not by doing their work, but by sitting in lineups and queues. Mm -hmm. Uh, So the inefficiency in the industry is quite significant and they don't get paid for sitting on their butts. No, they don't. Um, you know, but I was recently reading uh, that WestJet, some of the big airlines are actually looking to pivot to see if they can pick up some of the slack in this area because they can't make money right now off of travel in the tourism sector. They're having trouble doing their regular kind of business. So they're starting to say, well, look, we got planes, we can move goods. Maybe they can pick up the slack. But who uh, can actually pick up the slack of truck drivers? 
um, you know, should they be that short this many? I don't think the airline, we can't turn to an airline to get things like fruits and vegetables and food. We can some things, just not everything. That, that's right. You know, it, when you're talking about long haul, let's say coming from, from Asia and the Middle East, um, it's it's well known that passengers were subsidizing cargo in the in the bellies of uh, of aircraft and making it cheaper to fly, but as COVID hit and fuel prices increased and uh, all sorts of other complexities came into the into the system, the cost of air freight has increased significantly as well. Mm -hmm. So although some of the airlines are pivoting the extra capacity they have. It's not the solution to issues like bringing fruit and vegetables from California and Arizona. It, it'll just make it more more complex. Boy, oh boy! So it's been, this is being what I have to think that the, the prime minister is being briefed on this, and that the transportation minister and all the all the people, uh, you know, that we pay to do this, our work for us. They're, they have to be paying attention to this. I, I don't know what game they're playing or what they think they're going to get out of this. I just don't see any win for uncertainty at this point in our lives. That's right. I think the the government is coming ahead with uh, policy and not necessarily sitting down with the uh, with the stakeholders from from what I can see and what I'm interpreting. If they did sit down with the trucking industry north and south of the mm -hmm. border uh, and collaborated with the Biden administration, they could come up with something that uh, that works and and it needs to be risk based. So, mm -hmm. you know, 90% of drivers or 90% plus uh, will be vaccinated. But still, we need a better system. We need a system where they're not uh, lining up with fresh fruit and vegetables, you know, perishable yeah. goods at the border, waiting in you know two or three or four kilometer long uh, lineups. So we need a system that's more efficient, that's more effective, and more electronic. And maybe the drivers can also you know uh, pre-submit information beforehand uh, so that they don't have that complexity at the border. There, there are better ways of doing it. I'm not sure if if uh, the government is engaging with industry as much as it should. Something tells me they're not, John, but, you know, welcome to two years of uh, reactive pandemic, um, you know, response measures, and that's why we're seeing a lot of systems on the verge of collapse. Very much uh, apologize for the technical issues on our end, but I thank you so much for joining us. No problem. Thank you, Alex. That is uh, John Keogh, who is uh, someone I turn to a lot. He is an expert in all things food chains and supply chains and all this stuff. So he watches it and I uh, pick his brain a lot. Thank you for listening, of course. You can join me live Monday through Friday, starting 6.30 sharp. I'm Alex Pearson on Point, and this is Global News Radio.